Hey guys, it's Ken. I wanted to share a quick word with you about our new sponsor, OfficerPrivacy.com. Hey, did you know that all your information is all over the internet? Your home address and even cell phone numbers? This is a problem for you and your family as a police officer or applicant. Just do a quick search on the internet. You're gonna find all kinds of news articles about anti-police groups showing up at officers' homes. We have to do everything we can to protect our families from these groups. Check out our friends at officerprivacy.com. Using their free software, you can remove your private info from the internet in about an hour, or you can have their team of Leos do the work for you. I highly recommend them. So go to officerprivacy.com forward slash PAP, PAP for the Police Applicant Podcast. That's our special code, guys officerprivacy.com forward slash P-A-P and sign up today. It'll be the best thing you can do for you and your family. So let's get to today's episode. Despite strong video evidence, a jury acquitted a man accused of beating and shooting at a San Bernardino County Sheriff. What was your first reaction when you got that news? Disbelief. Megan McCarthy suffered several injuries in the attack. It happened on September 4, 2019. When he falls to the ground and he's still fighting me and he takes my gun and you can hear me say, please. the police applicant podcast this is a youtube live event we are simulcasting on facebook at the police applicant applicant group north america and the 830 club i'm ken royball and i'll be co-hosting tonight with donovan heavener donovan welcome back home thanks it's good to finally be back in the pacific northwest (laughs) (laughs) i ain't gonna lie california's too hot for me (laughs) and uh uh our special guest tonight is uh Megan McCarthy and the, Megan, this has been a long time coming. In between all of the your your, uh, your the networks getting you on the news to talk about your incident, as well as being a public speaker at different events, we welcome you. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. This is very long overdue, and I look forward to this. Yeah. So. Um, for the folks that don't know, I want to introduce Megan to you. I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody that doesn't know your story or hasn't heard about it. So this is going to be a really, um, a really good introduction to you. Not only what happened to you, what happened in the justice system, but what happened uh, with your PTSD as well. Uh, these are things that we need to talk about, and I can't think of anything anyone better than you. Um, So just as a way of introduction, on September 19th, 2019, Megan responded to a call of an out-of-control man named Ari Young, and this was a radio call. You're working for the San Bernardino Sheriff's Department as a a one-man, one-man, I said one-man, one-man patrol car. I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be politically correct. And so uh, that story in and of itself. So here we have a radio call. Megan shows up and Megan, you just go ahead and take it. 
So it came out about eight o'clock in the morning. It came out as an unknown problem. So that's kind of the umbrella of somebody needs help, but we don't really know what to classify it. And I happened to be in the area and I drove to the address. I think I arrived maybe five to 10 minutes after 911 was called. And as I'm driving there, the woman on the phone, the reporting party was saying, oh my God, oh my God, get him out of here. Get my son out of here. I want him gone. And then the phone kind of goes quiet. So she's still on the phone with dispatch, but she's not answering questions. So it's bumped up to a priority one. And so I arrive and, you know, I do my approach to houses down as we're trained. And as I start walking up to the front door, the front door opens and I had just crossed the threshold of like the driveway and the roadway and out comes the suspect I'm presuming. And he's beelining it straight towards me. And he has that demeanor. He's angry. He's mad. His fists are clenched. You know, he's not having a good day. And out right behind him is his mom still on the phone with dispatch and she's holding a knife in one hand. So I conduct, you know, my, I try to begin my investigation and I piece everything together. Like this woman has armed herself against him. I don't know what had occurred in that house, but I need to detain the situation. So I go to place his hands in the small of his back, just start beginning, you know, do you have anything in your pockets that could poke me, hurt me, you know, the whole thing. And as soon as I start touching his pockets, he just gets angry. I think it's about 13 seconds in, he tells me, if we fight, I will kill you. And then he says, I will headbutt the out of you. So he's already set the tone as this isn't going to just be an investigation. This is going to be a problem. So I go to like step offline behind him. And that's when he spins around and he grabs my left hand and we start like tug of warring over my hand. And I'm telling him, let go of me, let go of me, get on the ground, stop fighting. And meanwhile, the whole time, the mom has somewhat, somehow three-wayed with the grandma in Riverside and CHP dispatch. So there's like a four-way conversation mm. and dispatch is hearing all of this going on. We had fought for about three minutes before that video kicks on. I went through my verbal commands. I tried defensive tactics. I tried my baton. He, you know, we fought over it. He throws it into the ground and then that video kicks on and he had pulled my head down like by my bun and the way my earpiece ran was it ran down my back. So he had disconnected my radio. And so I'm sitting there like putting out, you know, we call it 415, like I'm in a fight and I'm not hearing anything in my radio. And I'm like, man, like, where are my people? Why am I not hearing anything? And lo and behold, he had disconnected it. But dispatcher totally saved my life and she knew I wasn't responding and she sent people to me. So Anyway, about three, three and a half minutes into that fight is when that video kicks on. He starts pummeling me in the face. We fall to the ground and he mounts on top of me, overpowers me. I take aim at his head, miss, and then he traps my arm in the ground. And when we were fighting over the gun, the way that he had his hand was he had like a finger or two in the trigger guard. So we had discharged a round into the ground and that caused it to stovepipe. So when he's able to take it from me and he's pointing it at my forehead, he didn't know that it had malfunctioned. So I remember being on hands and knees and looking up at him and I'm just looking down the barrel of my own gun and I hear the trigger click, but there's, you know, I had, I had so much pain in my face. The only logical thing I thought was I had just been shot, you know, like my brain was processing how I was looking at a gun, but I wasn't I was like, okay. My legs are moving. My heart's working. Like we got to get out of here. So I turn and I run away and then I hear another gunshot go off and I know he's shooting at me. And so I go and I turn cover and Right as soon as I turn in this little cubby, like between bushes, three of my partners come, code three, lights and sirens right there. And then he gets into a gunfight with them and he's taken to the hospital. I'm taken to the hospital and the rest is history.
And he, he got shot, right? Yeah. He got shot quite a few times. Um, Donovan, I've just, I, I have to take a minute and process yeah. all this. <laughs> yeah. And I've listened to a couple of podcasts that Megan's been on, so I've heard it. And just hearing you say it again is just, wow. <laughs> it, it's, it's hard to take in. We, I mean, Megan kind of, kind of, uh, uh, summarized it, but you, but we're talking about three minutes of fighting and mm-hmm. Donovan and I talk about a fight that lasts three minutes and that will most people, three minutes, two minutes, two minutes, they're done, you know, mm-hmm. but three minutes of, and it's not just, Oh, we're, we're wrestling. This is a fight for your life. And this is real, Megan. This is not, mm-hmm. this is real life. You're fighting for your life. Cause he, he get, he went for your gun. What was, what did, when you realized that your gun had been unholstered, what was going through your mind? So I had actually taken my gun out of the holster and what my thought process was, it was my last ditch effort to not escalate to lethal force, right? If I'm being told by a police officer, I'm going to shoot you because you can hear me on the video. I say it like two or three times. I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to shoot you. My thought was that would provoke him to stop. Like you think the logical part of your brain would be like, oh my God, I don't want to get shot. I should probably stop what I'm doing. Instead, you know, it, it didn't change anything. And by the time we had moved from the street where I'm telling him, I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to shoot you. I'm on my back and he's on top of me. And I take aim at his head and I miss. And my thought was I'm losing this fight. You know, the will to survive exists. Yes. Everything you're taught in the Academy is real hundred percent, but it's nothing like a fight for your life. When you know, that's a real bullet. My gun is loaded. This person's trying to kill me. It's not just a, a scenario where, you know, you go to the mat room and you know, it's the red man scenario that we call it. And you fight like a landlord tenant. You can talk that brain into saying, this is not real. Like just get through it. But in my situation, it was, I may not get through this. Yeah. And, yeah. and, uh, is there, I think a lot of people, you know, they talk, they talk tactics and, and all that. Is there any way that, that, that you think that, you could have prepared yourself for this more or because we prepare and you train, you train, you train. And then this happens. I, I, me personally, I don't think you can actually, I mean, for that type of scenario. Well, do I think I could have enrolled myself into jujitsu? Absolutely. Do I champion people, especially women? I'm not, you know, immune to say there is a size difference between men and women. There is a strength difference. Do I think that's a pass for somebody to try and kill you because you're a female? Absolutely not. However, do I think that I would have benefited from more defensive tactics, ground tactics? Sure. Absolutely. I also prided myself in going to the range often. I did shoot a lot and, you know, my husband's on the SWAT team. We trained, you know, like tack reloads. We trained all the things to help you in a gunfight, but do I wish the Academy would have taught me how to shoot from a bad position instead of stagnant at three yards, you know, through to the head, whatever it is now? Absolutely. And do I think we're doing a disservice by standing still? That's not real life. And so sh- could I have prepared more? I guess, you know, in hindsight, I could have. But I also think that if somebody is out to kill you, there isn't an expectation of your training to take that over, you know, and I know that sounds kind of weird, but you can only do what you can do. And we see time and time again, these, 
you know, cops are doing the right thing and they still end up being murdered. Well, that's that person's fault. It's not the cop's fault that he trained less than he should have. Yeah. I mean, go ahead. Yeah. So Megan, the question I have is because I, uh, since hearing your story and getting back to the Academy up here in Washington, I use your story with the recruits. And the question I have is at the time that this happened, what was your, your physical fitness at that time? I mean, were you doing regular workouts? I mean, were you in shape or, you know, that's yeah. Yeah. Uh, physical fitness is helpful for me mentally as well as physically. I had actually just gotten done being a guest hack officer for the Explorer Academy. And so we ran those kids everywhere. I love going to the gym. I went at least five, six times a week. You know, obviously I'm no, you know, bikini competitor up there completely shredded, but I, I prided myself on eating well, taking care of my body, you know, doing all the things that, you know, you should do and you know, you should be doing. I was doing that. Right. And, and what I do is I, I show clips from, from your story and I, uh, me and Ken have talked, there is really no physical fitness up here in Washington for recruits at the Academy. No. And I show them that clip and, and it's a, you know, what we have that's on the internet is that short little clip, not the full three minutes. Yeah. And, and I show that to them. I'm like, can you survive this time? And then when they are like, oh man, you know, I might be able to, I'm like, all right, you got to tack on more time there. Cause this took three minutes and you just see that look of horror on their face. I mean, and me and Ken always talk about, you know, our, our academy's getting too soft. And I think you're proof that we we have to keep that physical fitness in the academies because I, I wouldn't want to know what happened if you weren't physically fit at that time. I mean, I I agree with you. I think the last couple of years, you know, we had the Ferguson effect in 2015 mm-hmm. and then we had the Minneapolis effect in 20, 2020. And then now we're having whatever you want to call this effect. So it's hard enough to get cops and it's harder to get quality cops. And I don't know about you, but I would rather have a quality cop that has met these standards instead of just somebody to fill a seat. And I feel like we're kind of in this weird pendulum switch of we need them, but we don't have them, but we need to find a way. So how do we find a way? And instead of doing the right thing and getting the culture back how we should, it's let's lower the standards so we can just get anyone. And, you know, that's not to knock anybody. I don't want a Monday morning quarterback anybody's life. But I will say, I have wondered if I wasn't able to spin and run on my feet as fast as I did, that would have just been because right when I'm turning and running away, he clears that malfunction and fires. It's like less than two and a half seconds. So I think that's utterly important and mental health. You got to take care of both. Right. Right. You, uh, you were in pretty, you're in good shape. You made, you made, uh, uh, that important in your life to work out and all that. One thing that we do talk about, and I try and I try to get the police applicants to take it seriously, is not only mental health, but you and I have a have a, a mutual friend, uh, Sergeant D- Betsy Smith, and whenever she comes on the show, I always ask her. I say, Betsy, tell us about the warrior ethos, mm-hmm. and she tells us about that. And you know, I I love that because people in society nowadays, people think, oh, that's just. Um, that's just a little too over the top, you know. And I'm th- and I'm 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 like, you know, what's over the top? Suspects who try to kill police officers. That's over the top. And so, what do you? What's your? Um, now that you've gone through all this, what's your take on that warrior ethos and that and the uh, making sure the 
recruits in the academy understand that they have to be mentally fit as well to survive a street battle? I mean, I think, you know, you and Betsy said it best. It's hard now looking on the outside and not allowing myself or people to get completely wrapped up into an event, right? Like when I was working, I would handle a traffic stop and I would complete it and move on to the next. And then you move on to the next. So I was always trying to keep myself ready and prepared for whatever came next. And I think a part of that is from the minute you enter the Academy, you have to take it serious. Not that it's a job. This isn't benefits. This isn't retirement. This isn't pay. I think you need to find that healthy boundary between how am I going to go out there and be the absolute best cop, the best, you know, partner, the best person I can be while also taking care of myself so I can go do the best job to get home. And how can I also get off work and go be the best husband and the best mom and the best person I can be? And I think a lot of that kind of wraps itself into the same notion of if you go to work and you don't have this mindset of, or if you do have a mindset of complacency, I know complacency kills. We talk about that in the Academy all the time. But if you go and you're just like, well, you know, I just happened to get this job because I couldn't get hired at, you know, the fire department or whatever, you're already setting yourself up for failure because the minute a critical incident happens, you're already 10 steps behind. And when my shooting happened, I felt prepared. You know, I was uh, an explorer coordinator. I helped to, you know, bring up the kids to the program. I was a school resource officer. I had worked with kids. I adored it. I took my job very serious because I knew the implications if I didn't. And I think we're seeing kind of a difference in the mindset of people that, well, let me just, you know, go in and clock in and clock out, but it's not that way. So going over the fight again, what uh, you've, you got some pretty serious injuries to your, to the eye area and the face and Mm -hmm. what, what, what were your injuries? So I fractured, it's called your zygomatic arch, but it's basically a fancy way of your cheekbone. So where my cheek ends right below your eye socket, I had fractured that and I broke the base of my thumb and I still have hip, <clears throat> hip injury. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. Nope. <clears throat> hip injuries. Um, my femoral artery is trapped in my hip flexor. So when we, he, we landed on the ground, he landed on top of me. Somehow my hip was able to maneuver in a way that my artery is trapped and I was supposed to have surgery like two years ago, but you know, the County isn't always the most helpful (laughs) in in health benefits. So that's something I struggle with every single day causes a lot of problems for me, but yeah, I, you know, had quite a few bumps and bruises for a while. Well, that, that, uh, femoral, femoral artery. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that main artery that runs in your leg. That just sounds dangerous to have it pinched. Yeah, I've gone to, I don't even know, three or four orthopedic surgeons. I've gone to orthopedic doctors, physical therapy, chiropractors. And it's kind of one of those things that I'm just going to have to live with now unless I want to go in and have hip surgery. I don't really know if I want to do that, to be honest. But, you know, I can't, I'm not as mobile as I used to be. I sit for too long and my hip locks out. Like I can't. Mm work out like I used to, I can't run, you know, those kind of things are just going to be a chronic issue from here on out. And, and these things, so you're, you're going to be dealing with, I want to get into the, the PTSD part in a little bit, but you're, you have to deal with two lifelong injuries. You've got PTSD and then you've got these physical, um, 
injuries that neither of those will, will completely ever heal. Right. Um, and so these are these are some things that the that the police applicants need to be aware of that these are the possibilities if you choose to go into police work some stuff can happen. Um, so were you, were you in the hospital or, or, or how did that work? Yeah, I was in, I was taken to the hospital after the shooting. It's actually kind of funny. It's not really funny, but I guess you have to make lemonade out of lemon. So there's actually a clip. I think it's on ABC that it shows me walking out of the ambulance and he's loaded into it on a gurney and you see me look over at him. So, he had to be taken to the landing zone for the helicopter to be flighted out. So I just jumped in the back of my Lieutenant's car and we went to the station and then they called an ambulance and I was taken to the hospital and I spent about a day there and then I was released home and trying to figure out the next four years of my life. Wow. And how long were you at home before before I mean I can't I don't even know what I don't even know how to ask this question Donovan I, I think I know what you're going to ask so um, because I mean I have my own incident how long like with with the PTSD um, I have my own way of explaining it how long did it take for the the signs of that to start showing up for you once you got home from the hospital and everything well so I remember my sister took me to my parents' house because I just you know needed to be around my people and my husband was working. He had worked like a triple homicide, so he wasn't available. Mm -hmm. And I just remember sitting in the backyard of my parents' house and like sitting on a lawn chair and just like, what the hell just happened to me? It was almost like an out of body experience. Like my brain hadn't really processed what happened. And then that first night I remember I couldn't sleep. You know, I had just basically, I felt like I had adrenaline running through my veins for like four days. Like, I just remember I just felt wired. And so when I finally had that dump, that adrenaline dump, I think it was maybe a week later and I, the video was posted and it had gone pretty viral. And I started to get like cards and flowers sent to the station from people from all over. It was beautiful. And I remember I went with my sister to the station to pick up the stuff and I had received like a hand, I'm going to get all emotional like a hand crocheted blanket from this organization in like Minnesota or something. Mm. And it was you know, just something to comfort you at night. And I was like, Oh my God. Mm-hmm. And I think that's when it really started to process with me. Like that was you, Megan, you know, cause like we, I hate to say we get numb to things, but like you see things and you're like, wow, that was crazy for that cop. Like, Oh man, I hope he or she is okay. But then I was like, oh, my God, that's me. And like, I would wake up and look at myself in the mirror. I'm like, holy crap, we really did get punched in the face. Mm-hmm. But I will say, I don't think the PTSD really hit until about a year later. Okay. All right. I always kind of like to explain it as, for me, when I explain it, it's it's almost like a horror movie, like a house being haunted, where little things happen here and there, you know, in the movie. And then it just keeps getting bigger and bigger until you just can't take it anymore. And that's how, I mean, that's how it happened for me. And I didn't know if you had that same type of experience, you know, if it happened a year later, it was probably that, that long extended experience for you though. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. It started with like, cause my, it happened September 4th and my daughter's birthday is October 10th. And she, all she wanted to do was go to Disneyland. And I was like, yeah, we go to Disneyland. And I remember standing in line and being like, I got to get out of here. Like oh, yeah. what is wrong? Like I cannot be around these people or like balloons, a balloon popped and I about dropped to the floor and I'm like, man, this is weird. I'm 
myself or I would wake up and like drenched in sweat. Mm. It was just like you said, like little things. And, you know, people would ask me like, Hey, how are you doing? And I'm like, Oh, I'm good. I'm fine. Like I'm good. And cause I didn't, I didn't know how to not be good. I didn't know that that was even an option. You know, you're taught in the Academy, like the most tactically best cop is emotionally detached. Like you can't get attached to that baby. You did CPR on it's onto the next. So I was like, well, my partners are back to work. Like, why am I not? What's wrong with me? And then I remember it was like August of 2021 or no, I'm sorry. August of, well, maybe it was 2021. I guess it was like two years. And I just remember calling my husband and being like, you got to come home from work. Like, I don't know what's wrong with me, but you got to come home. And I started having those really bad thoughts and spiraling and and I was in a really bad place. And that's when I was like, okay, Megan, we need help. Okay. So it was two years before you got any sort of help whatsoever for the PTSD. Yeah, I guess so. Because I had my son in 2020. So it was when he was already born. So it must've been 2021. Okay. All right. Well, you know what, let's, let's move things around a little bit and, and go into the PTSD part, because I think that's, I think you guys are on to something right now and we could talk about some of the other stuff later, but, um, for the, for the people that are listening, all three of us have been diagnosed with PTSD. I'm going to let Donovan and Megan take this part. I, I got PTSD in 1992 from the LA riots. We got shot at and then some of the stuff that we saw, but my injury, my PTSD was not physical in nature but it lasted a long time. And I'll just add that when I, uh, another, another friend, mutual friend that we have, Megan is uh, Nick Wilson. He came up to Washington and he asked me to share my story at the, at a seminar for PTSD. And, um, the, the, although this happened in 1992, the, it lasted four days after that. And I had to, I had to throw a lifeline out to, to Nick all these years later and go, man, I'm, I'm messed up. And for four days he goes, okay, just, just uh, detached from life for four days. And that's my story about, you know, over 20 years later, what is 1992? I can't even do the math right now. Anyways, but, but all these years later, it didn't, it's, I thought it had gone away and it doesn't. So that's, that's the portion that I can contribute to this. But Donovan, if you guys can just tell us about PTSD and what it, I, I just, all I can say is it messes you up for, ever. Yeah. I mean, and Megan, I know you've, you, you've had your, I mean, you have the reminder daily because you have that pain from your hip and, and other things. Um, does that, does that ever bring any of those, um, feelings up through PTSD when you have those pains? I mean, does it bring you back ever? Do you know kind of what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, you know, as the days and the years go on, it's less obvious But, you know, like I still wear a bracelet every day because I get triggered and I just snap it. That's one of my things is like, okay, Mm -hmm. I don't like pumping gas by myself. I don't like the thought of people being behind me. So I'll just snap and we can move on. It's fine. I know how to process it. When I try and, you know, bend down and pick up my baby off the ground and it's like my hip seizes up and I'm like, oh my God, that just makes me mad. But it doesn't like it triggers me, but it just makes me angry. So it, like you said, it's a reminder, but it's just one of those things that like, I hate to say the word cope because I think cope is the biggest lie that we've ever been fed. Like you don't cope with things. Right. I just think you learn how to process differently. Right. Right. And one person told me one time, it's almost like, um, you're taming a dragon every day. Mm-hmm. 
trying to keep it down, which I thought was a good way to put it. Um, but I, you know, and I show a lot of stuff, uh, cause I do uh, trauma informed interviewing classes for the, um, recruits. And I do have some officers who talk about PTSD in videos. And one thing that comes up over and over, and I want to know if you have this as well, is that you have that after the incident, you live with that feeling of failure, um, that you let people down. And, and to me, that doesn't go away in these kind of incidents. I mean, I feel like a failure every day for my incident. And I don't, I, is that, do you have that same type of feeling? Absolutely. I actually just had an EMDR session with my therapist two days ago about this. A little subtle plug because I believe he saved my life. Dr. Trevor Wilkins, angry Viking therapist, miracle worker. Angry he is, Viking. he is a godsend. And mm-hmm. anyway, back to your point. When I found out about my shooting, I was laying in the hospital bed and my sister and husband were like, Megan, there's a video. And I'm like, of what? Like, okay, cool. Of your shooting. And I was like, no, a cow. And like somebody videoed it and posted it. And I was like, oh, great. My first thought was everybody is going to see how I failed and how much of an embarrassment I am and how guilty I feel. Like that's a cop's worst nightmare Mm -hmm. is to have your own weapons against you. And now you're telling me 13 million people have watched that. Like, how am I ever going to be integrated back into the real world? How am I ever going to show myself again? And, you know, then started the comments of, well, this is why women shouldn't be in law enforcement. And this is why that. And, you know, all the Monday morning quarterbackers that sit on grandma's couch and eat Doritos, they all, everybody had an opinion. And when I'm trying to figure out like where I even belong in the world, I was listening to all that noise. Like, you know what? Like that actually is really embarrassing. Like that. I, I actually really feel guilty. And I felt like I was an embarrassment, not just to myself, but like the profession. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and and I get that too. But then people respond, you got nothing to be embarrassed about. You, you don't have to feel like a failure. And it's like, oh, okay, I get it. But it, it just, it keeps coming back over and over. <laughs> well, and one thing, you know, Dr. Wilkins tells me is like, the brain is going to do brain stuff. Like you cannot talk your brain into or out of anything. You just have to learn how to get with the root of the problem and deal with it and process it. But you can't just tell yourself like, you know what? Like, I'm not a failure. Okay, great. We believe it. Like your brain doesn't work that way. Like there's legit chemical stuff that goes on in your brain that doesn't operate. So I think that's one of the big, you know, misconceptions is just talk yourself out of it. Like I was told, just get into another fight and you'll feel better. Like just get back on the saddle. And I'm like, mm-hmm what i'm good no thank you (laughs) (laughs) right yeah i hear you on that one the other thing i like to talk about um and and if you don't want to that's fine but um i'm very outspoken because when i got into therapy um i had no idea that i could fire my therapist and i don't know if you had any issues but i had a therapist that literally almost drove me to kill myself because of the treatment they were providing it and i had no idea i could fire them and then find my savior at the very next one who my therapist, I still go to her. She is my savior now. Um, did you have any experience like that whatsoever? I've gone through probably 10 therapists. Okay. And I've done the private sector. I've done, you know, through the county, workman's comp, the stuff they make you do. And when I retired in March of 2022, the county canceled my benefits and said, you've exhausted them. Even though I was supposed to get lifetime medical for the PTSD I had to use all my hours, which doesn't make sense. And then I go to my private insurance and they're like, well, it's a work related thing. You have to go to workman's comp. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of in this weird purgatory of like trying to figure it out myself from what I had learned the last couple of years. And I actually just met Dr. Wilkins last month at the wounded blue summit. And he gave a presentation and I was like, 
where have you been? Like, I've been looking <laughs> for somebody like you. So understandable, so relatable, a human being. He got it. I mean, I remember even like flagging my husband down. I'm like, you need to go talk to him. Like he is a miracle worker. And so then I scheduled an appointment with him and that's the best I felt in years. So, you know, I'm four years past my shooting and I'm just now finding like my person. Right. Right. That's awesome to hear. How important are those organizations? Cause you talk about the wounded blue um, and there's some organizations up here that have been helpful for me, stronger families, the blue hero project. I mean, do you find those as support um, through your, your time uh, after this incident? Yeah. Huge. And this isn't to dog anybody or anything, but life moves on as it should. My life ended on September 4th, 2019. That doesn't mean everybody else's should. However, as the years went by and as I'm sitting in trial, I didn't have anybody for my department. I had a couple friends that went with my sister for the verdict reading because I couldn't go. But you have to find your community. And we're taught, you know, these are your brothers and sisters, a thin blue line family. And you expect that, you know, if I get into a bad situation, I can just call for my partner. You know, I go to a bad tea stop at 2 a.m., my partner will be there. Well, who's going to be there for you at 2 a.m.? when you've been gone for two years and you're retired and you're long gone, I didn't have anybody. I'll mm-hmm. be honest. I mean, I had my, my husband and my close friends. However, nobody showed me unconditional support, like wounded blue crime survivors organization. These people that I found on social media that mm-hmm. I found a community that understood me, that I felt like I finally belonged and I wasn't an alien. And that has given me the more comfort than anything else. Yeah. And you talk about crime survivors. I, I, I found you on there. Um, it seems to be a big thing um, that you're a part of. Could you just let us know I, I what crime survivors is, what that group does? Yeah. So crime survivors is kind of like an umbrella organization. And I mean that in like the best possible way, but they're huge on legislative stuff. So um, the founder actually was the one behind Marcy's law and they just signed other, you know, victim rights laws. They're huge on victim advocacy. And they also provide a lot of services for people to connect like the holidays are coming up. That's huge. So a lot of these unfortunate, you know, families, whether they're displaced by child abuse or domestic violence, they aren't able to have, you know, things afforded to them. So she fundraises and gets money for pumpkin carving and gifts on Christmas and just having a safe place where like, I'm like a co-chair. So we meet with other providers and other people to talk about like, how can we best reach other survivors? Because it's a very lonely place to be in because not everybody understands, which not everybody should, not everybody needs to be a victim of violent crime. But when you find yourself in that position, it's really lonely. And so that's something that's given me a lot of comfort and purpose is putting myself out there to be vulnerable and connect with other people. And I have met people from all over the country that felt like I did. And they're like, thank you, because I thought I was alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, like I said, I, I was I was looking at everything you're doing there. And that sounds like a great group because it's not law enforcement specific. It's it's benefiting everyone, just not. Um, uh, those of us that serve in law enforcement. So I was, I was really excited to see that you're part of a group like that, just to, to help those and you're able to connect with them. Um, before Ken kicks, you know, starts saying, Hey, we need to move on. No. The last thing I really want to ask you is um, there is one group that is always forgotten during this whole PTSD talk and your family, your, your husband, how, 
how did they handle it and how are they doing? How are they dealing with what's going on? Well, so my husband and I met in the department, so he's on the full-time SWAT team and he adores his job. He, this is all he's wanted to do his entire life. Like when he was growing up, his dad was in SWAT. So he saw him and was like, that's what I want to be. I don't want to be a cop. I just want to be SWAT. So he's in his dream assignment. And, you know, he, over the last couple of years, we've had very meaningful conversations, finding boundaries. I support your job. I know you love what you're doing, but let's just start scaling back and saying no to things. Cause I think that's something that is really hard in this profession is you feel like you have to be a yes man. Hey, can you cover my shift? Yeah. Hey, can you do this? Yeah. Can you do this? Yeah. You don't know where the boundary lies. So as you know, we've gone through his department, his department, his work (laughs) has been awesome. They've been very, you know, supportive. Like the people on his team are great. But, you know, it's, it's definitely impacted him. And like you said, it's forgotten because nobody checks on him, but he's the one taking the brunt of my triggers and we do therapy together. So he's able to kind of hear and understand how to best help me and himself. And, you know, it's, it's something that isn't answered in a very simple sense, but you know, my daughter was six at the, well, she was five going on six at the time. And, you know, she's been impacted throughout all of this, mm-hmm. just, you know, the mental health, we've been very open and honest about mental health. You know, she knows what happened to me, not in the greatest detail, but I didn't want her to see or hear from someone else. So, you know, my littles, I have a three and a one-year-old, so they're in la la land. Right. But it's definitely like impacted my mom and dad and, you know, it's hard. So then you got to have some. Well, I shouldn't say some, you've got some anxiety then because when he goes off to work, you know, what's going on and, and you have, you're dealing with the PTSD. So man, I, you keep plugging along. It's, it's awesome. You know, and that, you, that he's there to support you. Um, I, I've just met too many that they haven't had that support and, and, and things didn't end well for the, you know, the couple. So I think it, it's great that you two have been able to find a way to work through it and, and, and deal with everything that's going on. And like, to your point, I think it's also very important if you find yourself in a critical incident, champion your spouse to come right along with you, because there's a lot of things that I discovered in therapy solo that I would try and relate to him, but it's not, it's like, you know, when your mom tells you don't do something, you're like, yeah, okay. But if somebody else tells you, you're like, I should listen. So when he started coming and he was like, okay, well that makes sense. Or yeah, I'm going to do that. Or I'm going to try that it actually strengthened our marriage because now we know, like, I know I can go to him and say, Hey, like I just freaked out over the toilet lid closing, like just talk me out of it. Mm, <laughs> yep. Anybody else, they'd be like, what is Xanax? <laughs> he gets it and yep. he doesn't judge me for it. And he sits me down and we talk it through and same with him. If he's like, Hey Megan, you know, you're kind of eggshelly right now like can we talk about it like we're able to have that open dialogue and i think that's very important right right and and the other thing when you talk about them going to therapy with you um there's a lot of stuff that when you're suffering from ptsd you don't see what you're doing right my wife came in and i i was bragging about how great things were going and then we start talking and i started talking about you know the point where i was at the lowest of my life and i'm like you know i was really considering killing myself but i'm too afraid to die and she looked at me and the therapist, she's like, go ride with him for five minutes. He's ready to die. 
he's driving like a madman. And then also, I mean, it took that for me to sit there and look at how, what I was doing in my life. I'm like, holy crap, she's right. And, and it's important to have them call you out on that. Yes. Um, so yeah, it's, I mean, I think what you talk about with your relationship there with your husband and, and with the kids, um, you don't hear that a lot um, with those that are suffering from PTSD because people don't want to deal with, you know, what we go through and on a day-to-day thing, basis. One thing that we really adopted early on is we were very open and honest with each other. So I would text him straight out and be like, Hey, listen, when you get home, like it's probably not going to be the best. I think we should order dinner. Um, I'm going to turn on the TV for the kids and I'm sorry, but I need to just go escape in the bathroom for 10 minutes when you get home. So he already has that expectation of like, he's not having to read my mind and guess what I want. I tell him. And then we go off that. I have my little moment and then we're fine. We can move on. And so that's one thing that I think is, is almost shameful in mental health is like people don't want to advocate for themselves. They don't want to say like, Hey, I need this. I want this. I deserve this. But the minute I started standing up and being like, Hey, listen, it's not you. It's literally me. I just need to go take a bath, like problem solved. And you know, we didn't have to fight. We didn't have to involve the kids. It was just something that my brain told me I needed and we respected. Right. Right. That's, that's good stuff to hear. You know, more people need to hear that. Right, Ken? Yeah. I just, <laughs> I have a question for you guys. Well, see, I, I'm kind of, um, it's kind of different for me, but I had to do the math, of course, 31 years ago. <laughs> I got, you think I remember this stuff, man. But I got, I got diagnosed. I went to the doctor about a month after the riots happened because I was having problems. And he goes, oh, you got PTSD. And then, and then I went to a, a, the department psychologist one, one time. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't talk to anybody about it until maybe two years ago. I talked to Nick Wilson. So 29 years had passed and nobody, I never knew anything. And so it wasn't until I, I had that incident after speaking his, his, uh, his seminar that I had flashbacks and all that. And I had to talk to him. So I don't know what you guys are talking about, but I do know that it doesn't go away. So my question for you is when I spoke at Nick's and Nick's and for anybody who doesn't know, Nick R- Wilson runs the Resili- resiliency project. He's also running for the California state assembly vote for him. And uh, uh, what was I going to say? Um, it wasn't until I spoke, I spoke there and I, I discovered watching the 2020 riots and, and all that. And I'm going, something's happening. I don't feel right. And all this kind of stuff. And then I spoke and then it just messed me up, but I don't know. I don't know. But talking about it messed me up. Mm-hmm. For you, for my question for you guys is: in 2023, um, does talking about it is that therapeutic for you? Talking about the PTSD, the incident, and all that. Go ahead, Donovan. For me, it is because I've had that opportunity. At first, it wasn't. It it triggered me. Uh, it brought up a lot of feelings, but. Um, to work through it with my therapist and i know megan does emdr i do art which is a variation of emdr and once i was able to do that and start processing things out talking about it um actually is more therapy for me so any chance at the academy when i get to tell my story to the recruits it's it's for me one step of of getting closer to some sort of better reality every time i tell it it's like a little little bit of weights lifted off my shoulder because i know if I tell that story, I might be saving one person's life. If I can do that, 
I'm good. You know, we all got into this business. I always, I always dog the recruits. Your general answer during your, your entry level interviews, you got in this business to help someone. All right. I'm back to that now. I'm hoping I help at least one person when I tell my story. That's, that's why I can tell it and it makes me feel better. I don't get triggered anymore. Yeah, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I was, you know, like we talked about earlier, I was very ashamed of myself for years. And one thing my ther- my prior therapist had told me like was just wait until you get on the stand and you tell your truth and you tell your story, you will feel so much better. Cause you know, obviously when we're in the middle of, you know, criminal proceedings, you can't talk about certain details. So I would see, you know, people talking about all these things and I'm like, but that's not the reality. Like, I just want to be able to tell you like what really happened. And so when I went to trial and obviously the acquittal happened, I was like, this cannot be my closure. Like I, I feel worse. I don't feel better. She lied. I'm going to go out and get my own closure. I'm going to tell my truth to whoever wants to hear it, whoever will listen to me. And I went on this little like campaign of like, this is a miscarriage of justice and I'm not going to just sit idly by and like, let it keep happening. And now talking about it is empowering. It gives it like a face because when I had pushed it down for so long, it was like that ugly little thing on my shoulder, like, but I just kind of ignored it. And now it's like, I can talk about it how I want to talk about it. And I can bring it up when I want to bring it up and I can relate to people. So they don't have to feel alone. Like I did because that was the lowest part of my life when I felt like I was on an Island. And then once I went public and I started meeting people, I'm like, wow, there's actually thousands of us. Mm-hmm. And so it definitely is therapeutic. I think talk therapy is very helpful if you've gotten to that point where you're able to process it. Mm. Well, that's pretty yeah. cool. You guys, you guys can do that. That's <laughs> awesome. That the, just the, just the tools you have to deal with that is really neat. Um, I don't know. I don't know back in the day and even some folks in LEPD were telling me in 2020, the department still had to address the, uh, the PTSD. And I don't know what, I don't know what I would have done after 2020 to 2022, 2023, uh, if I had not met Nick and Nick really talked me off the ledge and I just love him. He's an awesome guy. The resiliency project guys, if you are, are, are struggling with PTSD at all, don't be afraid to reach out the, this trial Yeah, and talk about, talk about, you know, you went through this for folks who are just joining us right now, Megan, Someone tried to take her life. She got in a street fight. It was over three minutes. The suspect got her gun. Not only did he was literally trying to kill her, he was shooting. <clears throat> he was shooting at her, <clears throat> and uh, she was injured very badly. And then, uh, and then, if that wasn't enough, then we go to trial. And Donovan and I were going over the trial, and mm-hmm. both of. <laughs> If I was to cuss, I would have cussed. I think Donovan may have cussed, but may have come on. <laughs> it's just that trial. And when the headlines came out and all I'm going to say about it is the headlines came out and they said that Megan was told you weren't the victim of a crime. And that mm-hmm. I watched the video. Mm-hmm. I watched the guy shooting the gun in the video at Megan trying to kill her, but she wasn't the victim of a crime. What happened in the trial? Well, I wish I had a better answer. And I I don't want to point the finger at one thing because I think we just were dealt a hand of cards that were stacked against us from the very get-go. Mm-hmm. When jury selection came around, mm-hmm. 
Assembly Bill 3070, which was introduced last year, allows jurors who have an implicit bias towards law enforcement to sit on a jury. So what that means is before, if you had a bias towards any ethnicity or culture, religion, you would be excused because that's a violation of that person. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, Sixth Amendment right. You have a right to a fair and impartial trial. Well, 3070 decided to take police officers out of that protected class. So now if you say, I hate cops, they're all bad, they're all racist, you know, you're allowed to sit on a jury and decide their fate. Mm-hmm. So along with that, we already had five out of 12 jurors have that implicit bias towards me. They believed the sheriff's department staged everything. They thought everything was fake. They thought I exaggerated and... I should have known what I was signing up for. What did I expect? And I shouldn't have, I should have waited for a partner. Even if she was being assaulted, I shouldn't have gone in there, which, you know, I walked up to the house. They came out to me, but they were just unable to see the video as being proof of a crime. I really quickly became the villain and they didn't like the way that I looked. They didn't like the way that I wore fake eyelashes. They didn't like how I had a panic attack on the stand and they had to evacuate the courtroom and they thought I was being dramatic. And, you know, we had jurors who were falling asleep and doodling in their notebooks. Like they just genuinely did not care. And they made that abundantly clear when they acquitted him. I don't even know what to say about that. Uh, uh, I, and I, I tell the recruits, I tell them what, the, what you, everything you said about why this man got acquitted and they're, they're still in disbelief that any, I, I mean, I think all of us are in disbelief that anything like that could happen. But after I heard it and I was down in San Bernardino County for 11 weeks this summer, I'm like, do I, do I want to stay here? <laughs> Run. <laughs> well, besides, yeah, but it's crazy. Besides this. Was there supposed to be some kind of logic to ha- to allowing jurors to have an implicit bias on on uh, on police officers? Well, if you read the language of the bill, it was supposed to make it more inclusive. And there's I don't know stacks about this wide of fine print, and it's supposed to be you know to allow more diversity in juries, which. I mean, I sat on many preliminary hearings and, you know, even jury trials, and there was never not that, you know what I mean? Like we live in a very diverse community. The high desert has people from all walks of life and everybody has been in those courtrooms. So I think it was in the midst of this whole 2020 era of defund the police. Let's make everybody a villain. And I know of two other cops in my county where I live that have had the same thing happen to them and assembly bill 3070 gave them the same outcome. A cop was shot at, um, eight times in his unit as he drove into a department complex and they found him, they found that the sub, the suspect was in self-defense and he erected, Oh my gosh, he acted irrationally and panicked. And that's why he shot the cop. So he got a misdemeanor. And there was another one where there was a, a person almost sideswiped a deputy on a freeway and he pulled him over and they got into a gun battle. The only reason why the suspect left and hid was because he ran out of bullets. It was caught on video, full on gunfight. Same thing, misdemeanor, negligent discharge of a firearm because they thought that the deputy was racist in pulling him over, even though he was actually DUI. So 
I think they thought that this bill would help. And in all reality, then they wonder why we're having such a crime surge. Why are we having crazy things happening? Because you're putting people that should be in prison. You're letting them back in the community. Like my suspect, he's walking free. We don't even know where he is. He's not on probation. He's not counting to anybody. He waived his rights when he talked to homicide and said, I would kill a cop. He gave explicit details about trying to kill me. And none of that evidence was introduced. Why? So because they thought that it was too soon after he had surgery and he wasn't coherent, even though we accept people's statements under drugs and alcohol, those are incriminating statements, but you know, the jury wasn't allowed to get the full picture and why some of these hap- things happened. I don't really know, but yeah, it was, it was negative from the very beginning. I used to ride in ambulances with people who are shot just in case they say Donovan did it. Yep. And then that, that, that was admissible in court. Mm-hmm. Why, why would it, why would this other thing not be admissible? But um, I think Donovan, I think this question is for you. <laughs> where I think, where were you staying or something like that? I'm just, I think. <laughs> or is that for Megan? That was in San Bernardino. Uh, County, oh, where this occurred. California. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This was, what, where was it? It was a, the incident. It was in Victorville. So it's San Bernardino County in uh, Southern California. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's funny that you guys take San Bernardino County. It's really the state of, cause it's so huge, <laughs> which I found out. It took me only like, I think four weeks to get around all of San Bernardino County. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're the largest county by like square miles in the whole U S yeah. Yeah. Huge, yeah. So much desert. So yeah. based on that, just going back to your incident too, because of the, how big the county is, I mean, how far out was your backup? So the city of Victorville isn't very large, but we do cover a lot of population with not a lot of deputies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my partners were still at the station and getting their paper done from the night before it was, that was the first call of, of my shift. So I worked 7am to 7pm and that came out at like eight something. We had just left briefing and I don't know exactly where they were, but I know that well, I shouldn't say I know, I don't want to speak on behalf of someone, but I spoke to the dispatcher afterwards and she said within like three minutes of me arriving, she sent people to me. So they were there to me within four to five minutes. So okay. not too far away, but you know, we cover like there's hot crimes that happen from sunup to sundown. Like there's always something going on. So you don't have the ability to back your people on every call. Right. 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 And what, what were your feelings when you heard the sirens? Because Donovan I, knows about that. <laughs> I was just so, well, I was scared. I'll tell mm-hmm. you. Because, and you can hear it on my belt recording now, but I'm screaming into my lapel mic. He has my gun. He has my gun. Mm-hmm. Because he's walking towards my partners, holding my gun, shooting at them. So now I'm like, oh my God, he's going to kill my partner with my gun. Right. Like, is that my fault too? And so I'm in their backdrop, but I'm here the suspect is here and my partners are like just in front of him. So I go and I run to some trash cans to like get, you know, out of the backdrop. Mm-hmm. And I remember hiding and one of my partners comes to me and he's like, Megan, what happened? And I'm like, he had me at gunpoint. And they're like, what happened? Are you okay? Are you shot? I'm like, I don't know. And so it was just chaos because nobody knew what had happened until an hour later when they saw the video. And I remember my sergeant like grab me by my shoulders and he's shaking. He's like, Megan, what happened? And I'm like, he had me at gunpoint. He had my gun. He's like, how? I'm like we fought. Mm-hmm. It yeah. was just one of those things where like, it was so surreal. Like I just remember the feeling of 
anxiety and grief and sadness that, you know, now I'm, I have put myself where three of my partners are now getting into a gunfight. And again, it's just those feelings of guilt, but, you know, looking back, if, if they hadn't arrived when they did, I definitely would have been hunted down and killed. So what I I saw some videos of you reacting to the jury verdict, (laughs) the jury Mm -hmm. verdict. Um, so what did they, what did they, I want to say they, they can convicted of a, like a misdemeanor discharge of a weapon or some stupid thing. What, what was he charged with and what was he convicted of? So he was charged with like 12 different felonies and enhancements. He was charged with um, two counts of attempted murder against a police officer, battery against a peace officer, removal of a firearm, assault with a deadly weapon. Um, And then there was a couple of enhancements like no probation eligible. And then they added in like the police officer um, enhancement to like the GBI. And he was looking at like 55 years to life. And so when they came out with not guilty of attempted murder, not guilty of assault with a deadly weapon, they hung on battery against a peace officer. They hung on removal of a firearm and they hung on, um, obstructing and resisting arrest and they found him guilty of misdemeanor negligent discharge of a firearm and i'll tell you why this one gets me so when you see me turn and run and he shoots at me at the when i'm running i'm headed towards a house and i'm like well i don't want him you know to hunt me down towards a house and i turn and i pivot right at that exact time that i turned right is when he fired mm-hmm. so when the pharaoh captured the crime scene they showed the bullet in the stucco of the house. So the house is here and I'm over here. And somehow the jury was like, well, he wasn't shooting at her because he missed so much. So they got him of negligent to church. And that was the defense attorney who was really pushing that, right? The, that he wasn't really shooting at you. Cause I saw his remarks after the trial. Yeah. His thing was he was in self-defense of me because it was officer created jeopardy. I should have just let him go. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, wasn't shooting at me. He just shot the gun for whatever reason. And when I'm on my hands and knees and looking up at him, he never pulled the trigger. He just was holding the gun. Okay. So what's yeah. the, what's this thing with the judge saying, was it the judge that said you're not a victim of a crime? Yeah. So my attorney had asked for me to be heard on victim statements and victim impact statements. And she said, no, she's not a victim of a crime. It's negligent discharge. That's a victimless crime. (laughs) So my thought is, as I'm hearing all of this, I'm like, well, if they're telling me this didn't happen, then what happened to me? Because if video proof of a crime isn't enough, did I just need to be shot and killed? Then would you have believed it? Like, is it because I don't have a bullet in my forehead that I wasn't a victim of a crime? It's not the act of doing it. It's the intent. And they just could not get past that. They, I really believe that they were not able to put me in position of being a human, but because I was a cop, I was not allowed to be a victim. (laughs) So what was the outcome of his, I don't know. Did he even get, he didn't even get sentencing, right? So it's funny you ask. He actually has sentencing on Friday. So, which is kind of a joke because he got credit time served because he was in custody while we were waiting for the trial. 
but he has formal sentencing on Friday and I'm not attending because the defense attorney has decided to make a documentary and he has the film crew with him. So I will be absent. He's making a documentary about this specific incident. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh Lord. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, all of us were, all of us were just blown away by this, by the whole verdict. Mm-hmm. Cause we'd all seen the video. We heard the story. Uh, yes, joy. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yep. the the San Bernardino County District Attorney, he aren't they pretty um conservative in their prosecuting? Well, typically San Bernardino County has been very conservative and I actually have a friendship with Jason Anderson, if you want to call it that. I'm able to, you know, talk to him about everything that happened with my case. And they admit that there were some faults and some things that could have been done differently. But I think when it comes down to is this assembly bill just put people that weren't capable of viewing me in a human light able to make this judgment. So I, I often wonder would that have made any difference. And I don't know. So I'm 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 getting I'm kind of feeling like your life wasn't really as important as the bad guy's life. Well, and one thing that really bothered me and it still bothers me is about 2 years ago he changed his plea from not guilty to not guilty by reasons of insanity. And I won't speak about all of the minutia because that's not my place. The only thing I will say on that is when it came around for him to be released from custody, one of the questions was, well, you know, you still have this not guilty by insanity. What are we going to do about that? And he withdrew that. And so he essentially withdrew his mental health claim to be released into custody. And I have a hard time with that because as somebody who is living with mental health. I don't get to pick and choose when it benefits me and when I'm able to use it as a crutch and an excuse. And, you know, a lot of headlines I saw was he was, you know, I was attacked by a schizophrenic man. And again, I don't think it's right for me to peer into someone's being on their mental health, but I think it's important to recognize that the mental health system favors the suspects and not the victims. So, so he gets free mental health and you get hassled about your ongoing care. Okay. I get canceled. You get canceled. Mm-hmm. And do you feel at the end of it all, or now, do you feel victimized by the justice system and by the state and by the courts and all that stuff? Absolutely. You know, like Donovan had said, you enter this profession to help people. And I love the idea of that. I genuinely did. I loved what policing stood for. And when I stood on that stage and, you know, read the the oath and the ethics and what you were doing as a police officer, I believed in. Yeah, not everybody's gonna like you and you're gonna have your problems, but I believed in it. And I thought that was for the right reason. You know, I believed in law and order and all those buzzwords you want to talk about. So when it came time for the justice system to protect me, completely abandoned me, completely turned his back on me, completely discounted my life and my existence and what had happened to me. 
So it does make me feel a little jaded about, you know, like, then what's the point? Because Mm -hmm. if at the end of the day, this is the result, then why are we doing what we're doing? Yeah, that, and I think you have every right to have those feelings after what you went through and that verdict. I think you have every right to to have those feelings. Thank yeah, you. and it's just it's just I think it it's probably a feeling of helplessness. Yeah, mm-hmm. helpless and hopeless and not good enough is like the three things that I struggle with to this day with my therapist. Is you know all of the things that come with a trauma. And then you're re-victimized on the stand. I was cross-examined for three days and I was harassed and called horrible names. And then for that to be the outcome, like at least I thought, okay, God forbid we don't get the attempt murder. At least we'll get the 245. Like at least we will get the assault with a deadly weapon. He will go to prison. All will be right in the world. And then for them to just say like, well, you know, you shouldn't have worn eyelashes. And what did you expect? It's like, wow. That's actually really sad. Mm-hmm. That that was on the witness stand. Did they mention that? Oh yeah. <sighs> okay. It's California, Ken. Why are you surprised? Uh, <laughs> it just it just gets work. <laughs> just this, right? This uh, is crazy. I came from California, and this is like blowing me away. I don't understand how stupid mm-hmm. they can be. But um, you've got these lawyers, and they're sometimes they're dirtbags, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, fortunately, because I'm retired, I can call an attorney a dirtbag, and we can yep. all call, you know, I, I, some of these little loopholes. It's like, well, you know what? It, he was on this side of the street, and he should have been on this side of the street on this given day. So because of that, even though he shot at you, you know, King's X. Mm-hmm. Not guilty. And I'm like, but he shot at Megan. What do you want? It's on video, man. I could go on about this, but um, so I'm sorry, you're going to say something. I was going to say, it's just the complete lack of accountability. And then, you know, these people cry and they say like, well, why is my car broken into at the grocery store? And why is crying so bad? And I don't feel safe. Well, what do you expect? Like the battle between good and evil will never go away. And that line that you want to protect you is slowly diminishing and you're not helping. So it's like, hold people in, allow cops to do their job and put people in jail and allow them to get prosecuted and stay in jail. Mm-hmm. It's like a really simple concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So with all this, how do you stay in California? Because <laughs> I, 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 I've heard you talk a little bit about, you know, why you're staying in California. But I mean, really, uh, you think about it, and everything you've gone through, how do you, <laughs> I know it's home. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's my zip code is the way mm-hmm. I look at it. I don't, okay. I don't feel like this place is home anymore. Okay. My husband obviously still has to work here right. and I don't know if the day will ever come until retirement where we are able to leave. You know, do I wish we could have left on September 5th? Absolutely. Right. Do I feel like, <clears throat> Aside from my incident, if something were to happen to him, would he be protected? Probably not. So I know that this is not the best place to raise our kids anymore. I know that there's not a park that I feel safe taking my kids to anymore. 
like this place is just not conducive for us, but we don't have the luxury, you know, of, of calling and saying, Hey, can I go and work at the Austin, Texas office now? Like it just doesn't work that way. So I don't know. I mean, I'm preaching to the choir, but I mean, we, I think of things every day. Like I am constantly searching Zillow. Like, look, look at this house. We can go here. But no, it's a pipe. And and I wanted to ask you that question because we are dealing with people who are getting into law enforcement. And I think it's important for them to hear that, you know, what you have to say about that. Um, that sometimes, you know, you do get wrapped up in something. And like you said, it's just a zip code now. <laughs> That's what yeah. it is. It's well, just a place to be until we can't. Uh, Joy's your biggest fan. Thank you, yeah, Joy. Really. For, we've got <laughs> other <laughs> we've got other people in here, but Joy's the only one making the uh, making comments. So that's fine. If you have a question for mm-hmm. Megan, go ahead and ask. Um, what are you doing today? I see you on Instagram. You're going yeah. to Vegas. You're doing speaking engagements um, and you're on the news a lot. What, what's happening with you today? <clears throat> well, I'm just trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. I don't know. I, uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it's true. I'm like, I don't know. I, you know, stay home with my babies and I dabble in the social media world of just trying sounds so cliche, but like just be for someone what I wanted when I was going through this. And mm-hmm. it doesn't take much to respond to a message. You know, people have asked me like, Hey, I don't feel comfortable going to my department. Like, do you have somebody you recommend? And I connect them with peer support somewhere else. And I didn't feel like I could turn to somebody for that help. And so I suffered in silence for a long time. And, you know, I've been very fortunate that I found, you know, like Fox news. They're amazing. They have me go on and I contribute to lawn crime and you know, stuff that's going on and they're amazing. They support people that want to try and make a difference for those of us that still want that difference. And when I yeah, you know, Fox News has been good to you. I, am I the only one out of the three of us right now that has not been on Fox News? <laughs> <laughs> hey, Fox News, right yeah. here. Uh, give me some face. God, Donovan. <laughs> I, but it, it's got to make you feel good, though. I mean, everything you're doing, um, you know, with with all the stuff you're doing in, in social media, and talking at these conferences that, you know, you say you want to help someone, you're helping a lot of people though. Um, you went through a really shitty incident. I mean, and that's not even, that's not even explaining what you went through, but just to make it easy. Um, and, and you're making the best of it that you can and you're helping. I mean, I don't think you know how many people you're you've helped so far um, since you started all this, because I mean, really I, me and Ken both, I know Ken's background. I want to, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I, I become a fanboy of you. <laughs> I don't do that to many cops. There's two cops that I've done that to, and, and all the recruits know it at the academy. But I've, I've, I've dealt through it. I, I read your posts. I read everything you do. And you're, make, you're making uh, a difference in what we're doing when it comes to the battle against PTSD and making sure that our cops stay alive. So, I mean, I, that's got to make you feel good. Well, thank you, first of all, for being so kind. I appreciate that. I, 
I just remember those really dark days of feeling like I amounted to nothing because I went through like a complete identity crisis. You know, when you're a cop, that's all you are. You get introduced at the baby showers as, you know, this is Donovan. He'll sign your tent ticket. Like that's who <laughs> you are. You wear the thin blue line shirts and you drive, you know, the right trucks because you have to fit in. And I never wanted my career to end. I anticipated doing this for the next 30 years. I loved my job. And so then for me to wake up the next morning and have that gone, like I knew, I didn't know in my brain, but I felt it in my heart that like, I would never be able to do that job again. And then, you know, I medically retired a few years later and I didn't know what, whatever happened, you know, I have, I've been very candid about my suicide and, you know, my low points. And I don't think you have to amount to the worst thing that happened to you. Mm-hmm. I don't think my story needed to end at, well, I was a deputy and I got shot at and closed the book. Like you can, two things can be true at the same time. You can be in a critical incident and you can have mental health and you can rise up from the ashes and you can be even better than you were before. Cause I grieved my old self for years. I wanted to be that old Megan so bad that I almost killed myself because why was I not happy? Why was I not fun? Why didn't I want to do this? And then now I'm like, I like this version better. Like I'm all right. Like I'm going to make it. Mm -hmm. That's good. And for me, can can I ask one more question? I know you're like, (laughs) no, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm, I'm mindful of, of Megan because she's, she's got the family. uh... Right. Right. I I got, I, I need advice from Megan though. And for me, I've been holding on for two years. My job has been gracious enough to leave me in positions where, I mean, I'm at the academy now. I'm still with my department assigned to the academy. Um, And the reason why, and I finally decided, all right, I'm going to retire at the end of the year. But for me, I've been doing this for more than half my life. And the greatest fear I have is, who am I going to be when I get done with this job? I'm used to being Officer Heavener for over 30, you know, 30 years and now stepping in. It's I'm not going out the way I thought I was going to. I'm not going out in uniform. I'm not going to be able to have that last call. I'm not, you know, I'm not having all that because of the circumstances. I mean, did you have that struggle? I'm sure you did. (laughs) 100%. I mean, I still have my moments where like my husband, you know, just the other day he got called out to a kidnap for ransom. And I'm, you know, kind of me is like, man, like I want to investigate that. Like, not to say that's a cool crime, but you know, like when you're a cop, you want the pursuits and you want the, you want to be able to do what you signed up for. Like, I want to investigate this and I want to crack the case. That's why we're so enamored with true crime because you want to feel like you're in it. And so that's one thing that I do tell people is just be careful how much of yourself you invest. And that's not to say to not have the warrior ethos and the mindset and be prepared give a hundred percent of yourself to your job and then go home and be a hundred percent who you were before the job. Because <clears throat> I struggled and I struggled so bad for so long of, well, I'm not a deputy, so I'm nothing. But if you work and go away anything, but if you work at Wells Fargo and you retire as a bank manager, like your identity isn't a bank manager. Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we should view fire EMS, dispatch, law enforcement, any differently. I don't, I think we should be proud of the job we do because it's not easy. It's very thankless, but just be mindful of how much you are immersing yourself. You know, 
I actually talked to a couple of people the other day that are going through the academy or they're just about to start and they're like, what's your advice? And I say, do not buy the blue line t-shirts. Do not buy the decals for your trucks. Mm-hmm. Do not, you know, attach TBL to your name. Do not identify yourself as a cop. Not to say you're not proud, but because if something happens, you will feel like you're nothing. And that's the pitfall that we fall into cycling back to the mental health. You have to make sure that you're a hundred percent authentic to who you were before. Right. Right. Yeah. That's good. That's good stuff. That's awesome. What, as far as, um, so we're, I think we're, we're going to close this out, but I wanted to ask you, we, you know, our podcast is geared towards police applicants. The YouTube channel is, is a little different. We have a different flavor for the YouTube <laughs> channel where we do all kinds of different things. But since this is also going to go on the, uh, on the podcast, what, what words of advice do you have for, for people that still want to be cops today? Well, obviously we all need cops. I think we can all agree that we don't want to live in a policeless society. With that being said, just make sure that you are in this for the right reasons, because if you're signing up to go to the Academy for the retirement or the 2% at 30 or whatever it is these days, and you just want benefits you will regret it. I have yet to talk to a single cop that says, you know what? Like I hate my job. I come home. I hate the kids. I hate my husband. I hate my wife. I hate my family. Everything sucks, but I have a good retirement. So it's okay. Hmm. Nobody says that because the survival rate after retirement is five to seven years. It's not great. And there aren't many jobs like that. So if you are getting in this, realize that My story and my details are intimate to me, but I am not the only one. There is a chance and a possibility that my story could become your story. And if you aren't, I don't want to say mentally prepared because I don't think there's anything you can do to prepare for something like that. But if you aren't committed to taking care of yourself physically and mentally and emotionally, then you probably should find something else. And there are different avenues in law enforcement other than police work. You can go teach. You can go, you know, do fraud or investigate in a different space. It doesn't mean that you have to go be in the community, but just, I know this sounds so cliche, but like, honestly do it for the right reasons because mm-hmm. I, I loved my job, but I had many days that I regretted joining. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how can, uh, how can folks uh, follow your journey is on Instagram or. Yeah, I only have Instagram. So it's just my name. If you want to follow along and it's kind of cool, we've built a little community of people that are like-minded and are there for each other. I see people going back and forth on my posts and they're able to connect. And then I get a message a week later, like, Hey, I met up with so-and-so and got coffee. And just to find a place of like community and safe, my messages are always open. I don't care what time of day it is. I don't care what it is. If I can't help you, I'll find somebody to help you. And so, you know, that's not like a plug to follow me on Instagram, but like I get it. I get what it feels like to feel like you have nobody to talk to. So come find me. And I have some friends on there that you can talk to too. That's awesome. And I send everybody to Donovan too. So, <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Megan, this has been very enlightening and, I, and your story is compelling. There's so much mm-hmm. to unwrap here, but uh, I want to thank you for being here and uh, God bless you. Donovan, what do you, what do you have to go out with anything? You know, I've been waiting a long time since you told me that Megan was going to be on. I've been looking forward to this. This this is just a great 
it's a horrible story, but a great story as well, because Megan's here to talk about it. And, and the work that she's doing is out of this world. So um, I'm just fortunate to be able to sit in with you, Ken, and talk to Megan. Thank you, guys. Yeah. And uh, there's a song that I, I put on a on a uh, ad for today, and it was called, I don't, I don't really think it's called I'm a Survivor, but that song was, I, 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 I was looking for songs. I go, oh, yes. <laughs> Oh, that's wrong. But uh Megan, again, thank you. God bless you. All your life you've you're you've taken this and you've come out of the ashes and God is doing great things for you and with you. And uh and uh, we just you know just pray a blessing over you and, and what you're doing uh to help others. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. So thank, uh, you. thank you, everybody, and we'll see you later. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Police Applicant Podcast. We are the premier police background prep site in the U.S. and Canada. For more information on scheduling your police background consultation, go to policebackground.net. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes.